Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Okay, so so today uh, I'm delighted to have somebody on who we've reviewed several of their books, we've interviewed him a few times, um, and yet remains interesting, uh, pushes the boundaries, and we haven't actually chatted with you for a while so who am i talking to today hi i'm brett king the founder of Movin, the author of bank 4.0 and uh, the upcoming book the rise of techno socialism and the host of the breaking banks podcast and radio show thank you well, for having me yeah no look i mean it's great i mean um, your podcast is doing going great and um uh, we 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 certainly did feature some of them we just got a bit swamped with content but you know like it, it's it's great i mean uh, you were one of the first people from the fintech mafia that we interviewed and from that that just set a whole journey going and um it's become very good very interesting and and it's really uh, it gave us a, a i guess a path to both yourself and so many interesting people um so look at look we discussed that we would uh, chat about your new book. So, I mean, you know, in your last ones, you, you, you've been in the future a few times. So, 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 so what's, what's the goal of the rise of techno-socialism and what are you hoping to cover? So in 2015, I uh, released a book called Augmented, Life in the Smart Lane, which uh, you did uh, review, Simon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I, I loved your review, actually, because you talked about the fact your kids were picking up the book, um, So, um, which is interesting. But... Um, um, in that, I, I addressed how technology will change our lives personally. What I didn't address was how society would adapt at a macro level, you know, how the economy would change, how, um, you know, the organising principles of society would, would change with the impact of artificial intelligence, climate change and so forth. So I'm endeavouring to do that. It's sort of a sequel to Augmented. Um, but, um, you know, what led me to this decision was, um, or this thesis, um, was not only sort of thinking about how, how AI would change the way we work and live, um, but also thinking about the, you know, the populist movement we've seen over the last few years and what was really behind that. Um, and in addition, you know, just seeing the, the massive increase in protests globally. Since 2000, there's been a 950% increase in protests around the world. Um, okay. And that's in the number of people protesting and the, you know, the, the frequency of protests. So um, when you look at that, you say, well, why are people so upset? Um, and when you look at the root cause behind the populist movement, you know, the rise of Trump and um, Boris Johnson, Bolsaro, and, you know, all those, you know, types of people and the, the movements around them and the ongoing, um, you know, tension, it really comes back to the economic uncertainty that people are feeling. Now, they may not be able to put their finger on it, but the concern about you know, whether they're going to have a job in the future because the economy is so rapidly changing, you know, um, and work is changing, you know. Um, you know, let's take an example. When Trump ran, one of the big, um, you know, talking points he had was about bringing jobs back from China, yeah. um, making Apple, forcing Apple to build their computers in um, the US, which was, has, hasn't largely happened, but also talking about bringing back big coal and big oil right yeah. um and so despite you know trump's best efforts at that 
Um, you know, the US added about 50,000 coal jobs over the last four years, but it added 1.3 million jobs in the renewable sector. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the fact is um, the, the economy is changing very rapidly and despite everyone's wishes to sort of roll back those changes and have it go back to the 1960s and 1970s, what they remember, um, you know, the, the reality is that the, the genie is out of the bottle, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the horse has bolted, um, you know, and so we, we really have no choice but just to adapt. But that's not the conversation we're having at a macro you know, geopolitical level. We're, we're sort of talking about how do we get back to the way things were in terms of social order and structure. And that's, just, that's not possible with the changes we're experiencing. So uh, it's really an effort to delve into that and figure out how we get through this and what comes next. Yeah, look, um, I, I definitely, what you say resonates with me and, and, you know, when 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 he was elected in 2016 and Brexit, so things from about four or five years ago, you could very much see that populism was was an outlet for people who were feeling uncomfortable about change, and uh, with the quality of the data and the the ability to check facts in real time, uh, you, I, you, I don't know if I I'm not going to say you would have thought, but I would have wondered or hoped that four years later. Um, people could be called if they were articulating things that weren't accurate. Whereas we seem to be in a situation where we're up to 20,000 things that aren't true that have been said during the presidency. So um, like, I think, I think your example of the number of jobs in coal versus the number of jobs in renewables shows where it's really going, but I guess yeah. a lot of it is about perception. So, yeah. so how, how, and I think we're still in time of flux. So the question would be is, is, how how do we articulate that actually things are changing and we are moving to a more renewable and a better thing, whereas the, the populist line would be, uh, let's make things like how they used to be? Well, you know, you, you had the vice presidential debate last week and they're, talk, they're arguing about fracking. You know, who's mm -hmm. going to support fracking? And they're both arguing, yes, we're going to support fracking. And, you know, like fracking's the last thing we should be yeah. doing it's environmentally unsustainable it's very damaging to water supply um it's been linked with um you know earthquake uh, earthquakes um you know th there's there's significant science yeah. yes scientific uh, evidence um you know that um it's a really really bad idea and um you know at the same time we've got an explosion in electric vehicles um, yep. which will reduce the, the requirement for the dominance of oil. And we should be accelerating that shift because uh, ultimately it's good. Now, people argue about the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle and lithium batteries and so forth, but the reality is extracting lithium, um, you, know, from, you know, mining lithium is still far friendlier than um, fracking, you know, from yep. a pollution perspective. And so you wonder why we're still having that conversation. Um, you know, why aren't we saying that, hey, this is the 21st century. It's clear the trajectory we're on 
you know, where electric vehicles are going to be a mainstay. Um, you know, they're far less complex than in internal combustion engines. They last longer. Um, you know, we've just got to solve battery technology to make them, you know, get extend the range, and we're doing that. Um, so why wouldn't we be, um, you know, accelerating our adoption of electric vehicles? Well, in the United States, it's because you have two very powerful lobbying groups, the existing vehicle manufacturers and the, you know, the big energy, big oil, yeah. big coal, that um, are um, really, you know, in, you know, sponsoring politicians and sponsoring legislation to keep their industries going just that little bit longer. It's unsustainable. Um, you know, solar, um, as an example, um, you know, we have solar contracts around the world now, including in California, in Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, you know, air, you know, areas you would think would be dominant, um, you know, fossil fuel economies. But we have contracts now, 20-year long-term contracts, where the price of electricity is down at around one cent per kilowatt hour generated by solar. Mm -hmm. um, the cheapest we have for coal-based electricity in the United States is six to seven cents, and natural gas is eight to ten cents. Right, and so um, you've got the nearest competitors to solar are between six hundred percent and a thousand percent more expensive for yeah. generating a kilowatt of energy. It just doesn't make any sense. Why haven't we? you know, switch the entire grid to uh, renewables, you know, despite and, – and with the fact that actually solar panels are um, – it, it fairly environmentally friendly to make. We make them from solar silica, which is essentially a form of sand. Um, you know, and so you know, like it's it's not a, a heavy environmental cost for production, and um, you know, it's cheaper. Um, and it's clearly more effective, but we've got to solve um, some problems to do that. You know, we've got to um, solve uh, energy storage problems. So we have to create better batteries or yeah. use other methods. There's some funky methods like um, molten um, salt, which is a very effective heat uh, a heat exchange mechanism for long-term storage of energy. Um, you know, there's there's stuff like that that we can do. Um, sterling cool. engines, you know. So, you know that, but. Yeah, why aren't we having this conversation? Um, I think vested interest most li most li most uh, significantly. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and we reviewed the, a book about the Koch Industries, uh, so KOC KOCH. Um, so yeah, look, but let, 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 let's say that the, the, the price argument just dominates at some point in the next one to three years, and it becomes a no-brainer to go for the cheaper and also sustainable source. Uh, if we can get past the 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 the, the lockhold of the lobbyists, um, what would good what might good look like in three to five years time? And 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 in in your book, are you, are you exploring both the impact on society and and even maybe politics? Like, how could things change uh, if if we yeah. can get to a more sustainable use source source of energy? Um, well, I think it's more about actually at a macro level economics and how we think about um, the economy. And mm -hmm. so what COVID has taught us is that um, capitalism, while being, you know, the, the, uh, the foundation of sort of modern economics, is not particularly good at looking at big picture issues. So capitalism has failed us when it comes to um, 
energy um, and its relationship to the climate, right? Um, we have incentivized fossil fuel companies to keep generating profits and keep, uh, you know, um, raping the the the, uh, the minerals out of the ground, you know, um, because uh, you know that that was rewarding um, shareholders with a return. And so, um, in under coronavirus, the same thing. You know, we we learned that excess capacity in the health system, having extra ICU beds and extra respirators and having ample uh, PPE, um, was not profitable, right? And so, you know, in a in a in an, a health industry that's geared towards profitability, you don't build in excess capacity. So when you have the coronavirus come come along, we're just you know unprepared. So capitalism doesn't have mechanisms, um, you know, to to look at these bigger issues in society. So we're really going to need some form of capitalism with a social consciousness, um, which includes sustainability. It includes the issue of equality. That's really sort of the biggest reform I think over the next 30 years we're going to see um, is that we're going to say that shareholder returns are not the primary goal of the economy. The primary goal of the economy is sustainability and making sure that every citizen is looked after. And we have the resources and the technical capability to do that now. We just don't have the political will and we don't have an economic system that allows that. Um, you know, we could feed everybody on the planet, we could house everybody on the planet, and we can ensure that no one lives in poverty today with the resources and technology we have. Why don't we? Um, because, you know, largely speaking, um, you know, the economy, the economic system we have has not evolved that as a priority. Yeah, um, uh, yes, I think it's true. And very much so that, you know, like, I think we have a lot of the solutions around us. Um, it's just about applying them and using them smartly. Uh, and, and, and we could exactly have more inclusivity. Um, so, I mean, I guess potentially where we are now is, is we're in a period of protest and resistance to this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that we're not moving forwards. Because often, you know, I think people protest most shrilly when they're closest to realizing that their argument almost has no, no weight to it anymore um yeah. so i mean you know i mean like i studied in america i spent time in the states it's it's kind of a fascinating and a crazy place full of contradictions of some of the smartest people doing really interesting things mixed in with people who who, who don't want to include science and data in their decisions so um what what is it that, that makes you enjoy living in new york and you know like how do you sit with all of that? Well, um, you know, I came to New York in 2010. It's just on the uh, 10th anniversary, actually, of me coming to New York. November um, uh -huh. will be the 10th anniversary. Um, before that, I spent time in Dubai um, and then before that in Hong Kong. And, of course, I'm originally from Australia. Yeah. Um, but um, so I've, I've really traveled the world. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm – passionate about and, and people who know me, you know, will have heard me talk about this. I think, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any greatest country in the world. You know, I mean, um, in Australia, we used to have this saying, we used to call ourselves the lucky country in Australia. And of course, America is very convinced that most Americans believe America is the greatest country in the world. But um, for most of the people that say that, they haven't traveled outside of their home country. Mm, yeah. um, and so the reality is I've observed that the world is a very diverse and very interesting place. And I love those uh, 
contradictions and differences in culture and and so forth. Um, I have a residence in Thailand now, so I'm once COVID is over, I plan to spend more time in in Thailand. Okay. Um, in New York, um, uh, I'm not sure I'll stay in New York. To be honest, uh, we're looking at some alternatives now, particularly with sort of the working from home revolution that's mm -hmm. occurring off the back of COVID. I don't really need to be based in uh, in New York. I chose that in 2010 um, because 2010 was also the year that Bank uh, 2.0 came out, my first book, and it um, you know going off and becoming a bestseller in like 18 countries and being translated into a dozen languages, um, you know, um, required me to sort of facilitate the demand coming off the back of that success in a different way. I couldn't be based really in, in Asia at the time for financial services businesses, which I was targeting the banking sector, you know, the biggest financial centers in the world were in London and New York. And so they, that sort of became um, a logical place for me to move to New York to sort of center my, um, you know, speaking business and career that sort of developed off the, off the back of the book. Um, and um, in uh, August of 2010, I launched, um, I registered the domain for Movin Bank, which became Movin, the startup that we started in New York. And the you know, US was also a, a, um, a place where we could raise funding yeah. um, easier than in the rest of the world. You know, access to venture capital in the United States is, uh, you know, it's a very mature venture capital market and access to that funding for startups is uh, much easier than in the rest of the world. So that, that was sort of the driver for me moving to the US. But, um, you know, now um, things are changing. So as a futurist, um, I'm sort of looking at, you know, what's uh, what's going to be the the, the next... Um, uh, where, where's the economy going to take us? And, um, you know, in it, like if you were in the 1850s, you'd, you, London was the center of the world in terms of the, the most significant city. After the Great Depression uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, New York was the, uh, the, you know, the big city to be in the world. Um, but where's the big city in the world, you know, going to be next time? Well, it's, it's you know, China's obviously going to be the biggest economy in yeah. the world very yeah. soon. And so it's really going to be Asia-centered. Um, China's not a, um, a great place to live for, as a foreigner. Um, it's it's tricky, you know. Even getting residency in China is difficult. Um, um, and there's, you know, you, you, you do have to be fluent in uh, um, uh, to to really be you know, day-to-day -day, uh, operational there. Um, but there are other cities around Asia, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, Bangkok, um, you know, that are, that are doing well. We chose Bangkok because of lifestyle. Um, mm. You know, great food, yeah. um, ph phenomenal culture. The people are so friendly. Um, you know, and uh, you know, good value for money on on the um, on the real estate side. Where you know, whereas Hong Kong and Singapore are extremely expensive. Um, and so, you know, that we want to be Asia centered. This is going to be the Asia century uh, in terms of economic growth. And economic dominance, and so you know, we we want to be where the action is. So that's sort of the futurist view. Yeah, I, look, I think it makes complete sense. I mean, because you know, whenever we're being 
sent books to review and to look at technologies you know they're looking at bat they're looking at what's happening in china they're looking at what's been rolled out in singapore you know i mean in terms of you know mobile payments and keeping everyone in the system they're just light years ahead in terms of the volume of business that happens that way so um you know when you strip away the the nationalism you know i think the innovation is coming out of that part of the world um i so i guess how 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 has um how has corona affected the way you work and i mean you've touched on this but you know it, it sounds like it's kind of nudging you to to now follow through on i mean like look i mean before 2018 19 uh, i was traveling a lot and then i realized that the, the value was less I didn't need to travel as much to achieve what we did. And it, it sounds like how, how how was Corona in that way for you? And, and how has it made you reassess how you work? And it sounds like it's already guiding you. You've already made decisions based on this. In 2019, I visited 33 countries. <laughs> yeah. This year it'll be three, I think. Yeah. 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 So that's a pretty drastic change, um, you know. On the speaking circuit, as a sort of a, a speaker globally, um, you know, getting paid to travel business class to you know around the world and visit these uh, cities all around the world and speak about yeah. something I'm already passionate about was something that obviously anybody, you know, that that um, is comfortable on a stage would would gladly uh, adopt because you know it's a it's a, a pretty amazing lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've obviously shifted to a lot more virtual content delivery um, that, uh, you know, is effective from a content perspective. It's not as effective from a networking perspective and, you know, um, from a dynamics perspective. But, you know, um, it's a uh, it, 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 it has worked. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, some of the travel will return, some events will return. I think it's going to be different. But I think the biggest change is really the working um, practice. Uh, you know, it, we have similar things happening historically, like the 1918 and 1919 Spanish flu epidemic. You did see, uh, you know, people having to quarantine and this affecting the way people worked and so forth. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the internet, so they couldn't telecommute like we yeah. can, um, you know, today with the internet. So the internet has enabled us to absorb, um, at least in the information economy, absorb these changes, you know, fairly e effectively. And um, it's not a, a big, uh, you know, issue for, to have people work from home. And hence Microsoft and Facebook and um, Twitter and a bunch of other companies, um, Google, have now made the decision to make working from home a permanent option. Okay. And I, I now hear of, uh, you know, the startup community that I'm in. Um, I hear of startups uh, now interviewing for candidates. And one of the first questions candidates ask is, will I be able to work from home? People are making that as a choice. Yeah. Um, and so I think that then gives you some flexibility. You know, like if you're working from home, you don't have to live in Manhattan, in New York City. You know, you, you now can live out. You know, you can live uh, in the burbs. You know, um, maybe you come into New York occasionally. Maybe you live out of state, you know. Um, th those options are available to people now, and it is going to change um, sort of the structure of the way we think about working practices. I have n I, I, I'm pensive about the potential uh, issues that that brings to, say, commercial real estate in New York. Um, which I think is going to suffer, but um, at A the same time, time think, yeah. 
but at the same time, it's really interesting from a work practice. But extend this out 20 years, Simon, um, you know, and think about the impact of artificial intelligence on working practice. And we're probably going to be working less hours, less days. You know, we may go to a four-day working week or a three-day working week, um, you know, as a result of, of those changes in practice. Um, people are sort of talking about four-day working weeks now as, as possibilities. Um, and, you know, the role of work in society is going to change. You know, when you know, when we, if we were to meet at, at, at a public event or, you know, with friends or something, the first question I probably would ask you is, so what do you do, Simon? You know, and, uh, you know, your work sort of defines you today, right? And so I think in the future, if you look 20 years out, when someone asks you that question, the answer will be a very different answer to today. I, you know, in today, we tell them what our job is, right? But in, I think in 20 years, we'll talk about what we're passionate about and what we're pursuing um, as a result of our passions, you know? And so I think that's the, that's the change that these, these changes in, in sort of working from home now around coronavirus and what's going to happen with AI and so forth, I think that's going to lead to a very different work having a very different place in our lives and in society. Look, absolutely. And, and I think, and, and actually in that scenario, when you meet people in person, you'll actually probably already know what they do. So therefore, it will be more of interest to you. Well, what's new and what are you passionate about? Because, yeah. because you know, I mean, like a lot of people in this sector, you, you already know the people that you're probably planning to meet, but you don't know what, what, they've, what they've got on the boil at the moment. So um, I... I just read another book uh, by a futurist and they were asked uh, a tough, unfair, funny question. So I'll put it to you as well. And, and so they were asked, OK, well, how many predictions have you got right in the last year, you know, or from things that you said in a period of time before? So I kind of laughed because I thought, well, that, you know, on one hand, a futurist gives us very interesting insights. But on the other hand, to put it to put it to them, someone was trying to get a metric to see how how good a futurist they were based upon the percentage of accurate um, yeah. predictions. So, so on one hand, that's an unfair question. But what do you say when people ask you something like that? No, no, I think it's a fair prediction because it speaks to your ability to, um, you know, look at trends and, and be an accurate predictor of, of what comes next. You know, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's fair. Um, I think more futurists should have their feet held to the fire in that respect. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, as you know, I, I started my career as a futurist, as an author writing in the banking space, not general futurism. Obviously augmented 2015 was sort of my first delving into the, the pure futurism, yeah. but prior to that, I've written mostly in banking. So in 2010, um, I, I published Bank 2.0, but Bank 2.0 uh, came from a report I wrote for HSBC in 2005. Um, and so, you know, my predictions sort of go back that far in terms of published predictions. And so in 2005, I predicted a few things. I predicted uh, by 2008 that the internet would surpass the branch for transactions. And then I, I um, predicted by 2015 um, that uh, mobile would surpass uh, internet in terms of transactions. 
and I predicted some sort of pretty funky things around that. I said by 2016, uh, mobile payments would overtake plastic card payments uh, and cash payments in the world. Um, and I predicted that by um, uh, 2018, um, that the vast majority of bank accounts opened around the world would be digital, digitally opened rather than in a branch. You know, as an example, there's a few predictions. So, um, you know, the two predictions I got wrong out of that was, um, you know, the mobile payments and the branch thing. Um, 2017 was the year that uh, mobile payments uh, exceeded plastic card payments for the first time. And 2019 was the first year that in economies like the United States, UK and Australia, digital account opening surpassed um, you know, uh, account opening in a bank branch. But in 2005, when I predicted those things, everyone thought I was absolutely nuts, mm-hmm. right? And so the fact that I was a year out on those two major predictions, I think is sort of indicative of, um, you know, the, the, the trend spotting. Um, I, you know, I, I got it. No, no one else predicted mobile payments were going to surpass credit cards for, you know, some people were saying 2025, 2030. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and we know it happened in 2017 off the back of the success of the Chinese mobile payments market. Right, yep. which uh, you know, AliPay and Tencent, WeChat Pay, and see, no one saw that coming. Everyone was thinking about NFC, and they were thinking about how we would turn our phone into a credit card, and they were thinking, well, you got to change the POS infrastructure, you've got to change phones, you've got to change people's behaviour. But they didn't see the mobile payments revolution coming out of China, which is where the uh, the, the mobile payments boom has, has really happened. And so, um, I also, um, you know, in uh, my most recent book. Um, which was Bank 4.0, which came out in in 2018. Um, I wrote, if you read the entire first chapter, I talk about first principles First principles engineering or first principles design um, being, um, you know, the cr- uh, the critical thing to watch for formation of the future financial services space, and I call out the fact that Ant, Ant Financial at the time, um, the you know, parent company of AliPay, now known as Ant Group, yep. was going to be the largest financial institution in the world by twenty thirty. Right. Um, And I said that. And even just two years ago, people thought that was ludicrous and ridiculous. Well, Ant Financial is going through the process of IPO or listing right now. Um, And their their valuation in pre-IPO share sales is somewhere between 283 and 300 billion US dollars, which not only makes them the largest privately owned company in the world today, but by market capitalization will make them the fourth largest financial institution in the world when they list. And so the path to them now being the number one bank in the world is fairly clear. Their uh, ability to scale their business up and grow their business digitally because of the fact they don't have the friction of branches and application forms and things like that means essentially that that trajectory for them to be the number one financial services organization in the world is now fairly clear. But two years ago, even people couldn't see that. So I think... um, I think my track record's pretty safe, Simon. I feel pretty <laughs> comfortable in that. But the, the stuff I'm taking on now with the geopolitics and the economics, it's much, much bigger picture. And so um, I actually, in, in techno-socialism, I actually have like an um, alternate timeline um, chart 
which shows four different possible outcomes. Um, and it's a good way for people to sort of visualize how futurists think. Um, and I've got four possible outcomes for society at large. And I talk about milestones that could take us one way or the other in yeah. those possible futures. But when I talk about the rise of techno-socialism, I talk about um, what will be the preferred and most positive outcome for humanity, but it will require um, much greater planning, um, a, a sea change in terms of policy and regulation, and some pretty significant shifts around the way we, you know, sort of value humanity itself and, um, you know, the planet, right? Yeah, and I guess that's the challenge because we tend to sort of stumble and fall into the future, almost resisting things, you know, like the whole mantra of this is the way we've done it. It doesn't mean that it's the right way to do things going forwards. So, yeah, look, I mean, I, like you say, there's an optimal path, but but we, 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 we're clearly not following that because, you know, Earth Day was the first one was what, 1973. So in theory, you know, we, we could have got to this point a lot sooner, but but we're often our own worst enemies. But yeah. at the same time, we, you know, the humans are very creative too. So it's that ongoing contradiction, I imagine. Um, Absolutely. So, so look, um, uh, where, where, I think it's great. I think it's really interesting. And then I guess the question would be, uh, when is the bu- when's the book out and what's the best way for people to follow you and get an insight into your thoughts? Well, you know, um, you can go to brickking.com and check out, you know, my uh, – my profile there, of course, uh, at Brett King on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Um, so you can follow it there. The book is out in April of, of next year. I'll get you a, an early copy for, for you to review. Um, there's, you know, I'm, I'm in the editing process right now, but um, I think the last thing I'm sort of waiting for right now is the results of the US election because that will, um, you know, if Trump gets back in, that takes us one way um, versus mm. if, if, uh, if, if there's a change. So, um, yeah, I'll, uh, 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 that's sort of I'll wrap up the book in November um, and uh, it'll be published in Q1 of next year. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Look, uh, I, I agree. With, I guess one, one thing, though, is, is if you go back to the, the Bush-Gore election and that wasn't resolved for maybe 25, 30 days afterwards, yeah. um, you know, it's you definitely going to be similar here, I think. Yeah, yeah. Th- I think that's the one thing that, that, that unfortunately, I mean, even in Ireland recently after the election, it took them months to resolve who would be in power. And, and, and with this, I mean, I guess this is why we're all hoping for, for, a, for a, a reagan Mondale kind of result to hopefully mean that, you know, the result is the result. But, but unfortunately, if it's anything less than that, you know, who knows you know like it could easily be the rest of november if not beyond but maybe it won't be you know which i guess right here and now uh impacts on your book yeah absolutely um so you know if you look at um the 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 whole bernie sanders elizabeth warren sort of movement in the u.s um you know there is a swing back to I won't say socialism because the reason I chose the title techno socialism was was you know to make it provocative, right? But yeah. um, um, if you think about, um, there's sort of this introspection we need. What is the purpose about of the economy? You know, um, and at a national level, um, 
you know, you could say, well, it's it's to um, create wealth or it's to create uh, economic activity, so it creates jobs. But ultimately, I think it's simpler than that. You know, the the economy is there to serve the citizens of the nation. And so right now, if you look in the United States, the reason for both the populist movement and the you know the rise of Warren and, and Sanders, I think is an AOC is is similar. It's that economic uncertainty. Um, it's that it's that um, you know th that's really driving people's concern. They're worried about their future, whether they're going to have a, a roof over their head and food in their belly, you know. And so that's sort of driving these these uh, political movements. So it comes from a very similar place. And so the economy is there to to provide that function for humanity. So when we look at um, you know the, the the super capitalist society in the United States, you know we also have the greatest inequality in recorded history in the United States today. You know the greatest gap between the rich and the poor. And yeah, I mean, and you have that book. Also, the the one about the, the, for the last three years, the life expectancy has fallen in the U.S. too. Right. You know, and yeah. You're spending more money f f for less life. Yes, and and you know we could argue about the healthcare system in the U.S. You know, they more money you spend in, in on healthcare per capita in the U.S. than and pretty much any country in the world. Um, but you know, they it it doesn't go to you know the individual's health necessarily. No. Um, yeah. You know, it goes to this sort of middle tier of uh, you know um, you know pharma companies and healthcare companies set up in this private system. But you know, getting back to the core, what should the economy do for you as an individual? Um, well. I think you know millennials, um, you know, coming for this are going to—they're going to have a fairly strong policy argument that, look, the capitalist system gave us climate change. It gave us the the worst inequality in history, um, and so. You know, capitalism hasn't worked for the majority of the population, and it's time that the economy did. So, what should it provide? Well. You know, homelessness, um, you know, the average homeless person on the streets of San Francisco costs the Californian economy $45,000 a year in policing costs and healthcare costs and government costs. Uh -huh. It costs you $4,000 to 3D print a, you know, one-bedroom apartment that a homeless person could live in. So we have the technical means to solve these problems, right? We don't have the political will. So this is a matter of, I think, restructuring um, sort of democracy so that it is that representation, um, you know, of the people for the people injected into sort of this real-time economy. So I do see um, politics becoming sort of a real-time consensus basis uh, through the technology, um, voting on issues in real time so that uh, you can get the read of people. And I think policy will follow that. And I think that movement around economic uncertainty, providing more certainty for people, will lead us to um, creating a basic social safety net. Universal basic income is 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 highly um likely mm, as yeah. sort of a base structure, particularly as AI starts to kick in and increase uh, unemployment, you know, techno unemployment, essentially displacement of workers uh, through through automation, you're going to need that sort of social safety net. So I think, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be any debate in 20 years over whether healthcare is a primary function of governance, whether education should be free, um, and whether, you know, um, low-income low housing should be uh, readily available for people. I think, I think that is just a basic 
requirement for a modern 21st century economy to provide the citizenship with. Then the question is, um, you know, if you don't have to, you know, if you can survive without having to work an 80-hour week, you know, on minimum wage to just, you know, um, get by, if you can survive on, on sort of universal basic income, what do you do? That's the big question. Yeah, do you which sit is at the, home and sit in the VR world playing VR yeah. or do you pursue passions? And I think this is a big question that humanity has to face um, as as we evolve around around technology. Look, I, I think so. I think and that's both the exciting and not concerned, but, you know, like, you know, I wonder. It's with, daunting. You know, it's daunting, with, yeah. With with our teenager boys, if you give them that opportunity, will they just play, will they just play computer games all day or is it a creative flowering of humanity, you know, and, and may, maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe people have to play games for a year or two to go, that's great. And now what will I actually do? Because yeah, I don't want to just stick of this now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think um, is going to be, be that. And I think also, you know, if we do get the longevity thing, right, which in the next 30 years, we're you know, potentially seriously going to extend the lives of uh, humans as well. Um, and, and again, there's going to be a real question over accessibility of longevity treatments, um, you know, whether that's going to be just mm. limited to the rich, um, you know, in the current system, that would be the case in the current system, only the rich would get the longevity treatments. Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if we make that more accessible and let's say you live to 130, well, if you live to 130, we would consider our adolescence the first 30 years we wouldn't we would continue schooling and playing until we were uh, you know in our 30s and had to get serious about a career because we're going to work for another 70 years you know yeah. um and so um you know it, it, it you'd have to sort of reframe the human experience if we start living longer as well so um it, it's going to be and and we, we're obviously going to become a multi-planetary species in that time so you know you could i mean if you wanted to choose a career you know out in the solar system and things like that there's there's so many potential opportunities coming as a result of the incredible technologies we're working on right now um but you know we have to sort of get rid of these limitations or the handcuffs of of commerce which is your work to put a roof over your head and food in your belly and and we have the technical ability to do that we just don't have the the political will look uh I think it's awesome. I think it's good. It's provocative. Um, hopefully it makes people think. And and like you say, it makes people question and challenge that they can have, we, we, we could have so much more and do things in a better way than we do them. Um, so look, uh, I, I, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, I think it's going to make a very interesting conversation for people to listen to. And, and I think the book will be fascinating when it comes out. And yeah, we'll, I guess we, we'll see how the election plays out in the next three weeks. And then ideally that that puts us on a good stepping stone to see these things happen sooner rather than later so look right, thanks a lot right. brett thanks simon we hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find you're welcome to reach out to us on twitter linkedin or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future thanks and keep listening